adventure fans, calling all Dick Tracy fans. Stand by. Here comes Dick Tracy now. Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice, those specially delicious, refreshing cereals that are shot from guns to give you lots of trigger-fast food energy, now bring you another electrically transcribed episode in this new series of thrilling Dick Tracy adventures. Another episode of the Film and Water Podcast, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and joining me this week to talk about Warren Beatty's 1990 Dick Tracy is our pal and superb artist, Zoom Yukonori. Zoom, welcome to the Film and Water Podcast. Thank you, Mr. Kelly. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, you uh, reached out to me and said you wanted to talk about this movie, and I have... uh, I have some very mixed feelings about this movie, because, uh, but we'll get we'll get to all that. Uh, as I said, this is uh, Warren Beatty's 1990 adaptation of the Dick Tracy comic strip. Uh, it uh, is directed by Warren Beatty, partly written by Warren Beatty, starring Warren Beatty, produced by Warren Beatty, uh, and it also features Charlie Corsmo as the kid, Glenn Headley as Tess Trueheart, Madonna as Breathless Mahoney, Al Pacino as Big Boy Caprice. Dustin Hoffman is Mumbles. Charles Durning is the chief of police. It is a real all-star cast. It's a really, really interesting movie, and I don't know if a lot of comic book fans have necessarily seen it or, or really are even aware of it because I just think it's, it's not one of those movies that has sort of stuck with people over time. So, Zoom, like, why did you want to talk about Dick Tracy? Oh, well, essentially, the movie is fun. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've actually been a long-time fan of, of Dick Tracy. Um, I remember as a young boy, uh, uh, I was nine or ten, and reading the occasional Dick Tracy comic strip in the paper, uh, which were mostly forgettable, I guess, I suppose, uh, because they were like in the middle of a story. But but I always thought that his two-way wrist TV was very, very cool. (laughs) 
But but it wasn't until after I was exposed to my late uh, Uncle Kenzo's comic book collection in the early 1970s that I truly had an appreciation for that character. Um, I, I've alluded to this uh, in, in past podcasts and, and, and um, in conversations on Facebook, but basically my uncle had been a comic reader since he was a child in the late 1930s. Um, and he had lost those early comics that he had owned, along with most of his possessions during the unfortunate internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Um, so after the war, he basically became a self-admitted pack rat, and he especially held on to most of those comics that he had purchased from the late 40s onwards. Um, he would only lose a few that he'd loaned to certain friends who never gave them back. Yikes. <laughs> but when Uncle Kenzo's friends were growing older and getting rid of their comics because it wasn't cool anymore, or, you know, it was at that interesting time when comics were believed to be worthless, uh, they would give them to my uncle. So he would have a, a number of duplicates of certain comics. And, and the reason I'm telling you all this is because many of those duplicates were of the Dick Tracy Comics Monthly, uh, which essentially combined Dick Tracy newspaper strips in comic book form. It was published by Harvey Comics. My uncle gave me all of his duplicate comics, and I, and I just loved them. Um, the, the straight arrow good guy facing a new and bizarre adversary in, in each story to, in, in each storyline, you know, like Flat Top and Measles and Breathless Mahoney was there too, and, and Heels Beals, <laughs> Crewy Lou, Spinner Record, you know, the, the names were as eccentric as the characters. Uh, I have a nearly complete run of issues from the mid-20s to the mid-130s, so they wow. were published from 1950 to 19. 1959. They're very classic, uh, classic stories. Um, and in fact, my uncle gave me a really old issue of Crackajack Funnies. It is spelled C-R-A-C-K-A-J-A-C-K, by the way. And it features a character called Dan Dunn, secret government operative 48. But he's essentially a Dick Tracy knockoff. He wore the same yellow hat and trench coat. He just didn't have the wrist radio and he had a slightly different nose. But Dan Dunn and other imitators just simply demonstrate how great and influential the, the Dick Tracy strip and character was. Now, what did you think of the, uh, uh, well, like, when you heard about the movie coming out, I mean, were you sort of uh, anticipating it? Were you, were you excited about it at the time? Was did, you, did your fandom of Dick Tracy lead you to be like, oh, I can't wait for this movie? Or were you sort of like a little skeptical of it as it was coming to like, oh, really, Warren Madonna, Warren Beatty? Like, were you excited about it? Well, I guess I could say neither. It, it's very interesting because I never saw the film in the theater Um I, I was in Hong Kong when this movie was released, uh, which I believe was in December of, of 1990. Um, I had seen graphic posters promoting the film here and there earlier that year. I've also heard tracks from, from Madonna's I'm Breathless album on the radio, um, though I believe they were ones that were actually not used in the film. But but I won't go into detail, but, but 1989 to 1991 was actually not a very particularly good time for me life-wise, so I didn't partake in the local cinema during that time. In, in fact, I would not seen the Tim Burton Batman film in the cinema either. I first watched that on, on PAL VHS shortly after I moved to Malaysia in, in late 1991. And um, interestingly enough, in 1992, I was visiting friends in Singapore, and, and we were watching the, the imported Canadian series My Secret Identity, starring Jerry O'Connell. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I do. I've, I've heard of it and never seen it. Okay. Well, well, there was there was actually an episode where the main character, played by Jerry O'Connell, was writing a detective story to impress a girl, and and the whole story starts depicting uh, that that uh, that story. I guess <laughs> the, they they were depicting the story visually by having the characters playing all these Dick Tracy type characters, uh, and and the uh, Jerry O'Connell was actually in the Dick Tracy hat and coat, and that just reminded me, hey, there was a Dick Tracy movie <laughs> that I didn't see. <laughs> 
<laughs> so that episode reminded me that I actually have, have to go see that film. Um, now, in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, there are no video rental shops, so it's not like I can just go and rent a copy of Dick Tracy, even though it was available on, on VHS. Well, and, and in this case, it was PAL um, uh, tape at the time over there. But, um, but there are plenty of places where you buy these movies, but, but a movie usually runs around 25 ringgit, which are Malaysian dollars. And, and I got to admit, I, I wasn't like a big Warren Beatty fan, and, I wasn't, and, and even though I was a, a big Dick Tracy fan, I, I wasn't going to plunk down $25 for, <laughs> for a movie that I may not like, especially since they had no return policy. So, um, so I, I wanted to be able to watch it first, so I borrowed a copy from a coworker, and he actually purchased him, his copy at, at the, the Pasa Malam, uh, the night market, at Pataling Street in Kota Raya. And, and basically, this is the night market in Chinatown where you buy bootleg copies of movies for 10 to 15 ringgit. Um, most of these are the type that are like filmed with somebody sitting in the theater yeah, with the right, little camera right, on the right, shoulder, yeah. you know, so you hear people coughing and... The, the the camera suddenly shifts to the floor whenever the usher comes by, but but fortunately, fortunately, this particular copy was was of a screener tape um, that was sent to movie reviewers by the studio to promote the film. So all I had to deal with was the message: if you have rented or purchased this cassette, <laughs> call one eight hundred no copies in eight bit supers at the at the bottom of the screen the entire time. But of course, I did enjoy the movie. I, I did, so I did purchase a legitimate copy a few months later when I wanted to see it again. Yeah, this this uh, I, I watch it again um, after I remember I saw it in the theater and I remember enjoying it. I, I watch it again and I it's not like I liked it a lot more. It's just the stuff that to me that is great about this movie is clearer to me, and the stuff that isn't great is is clear. I I think this movie in pieces is a near masterpiece. And then there are other pieces that are not very good at all. And I have a tough time judging a movie that I think – I feel like there is, a, there is a masterpiece buried in here. And it's the kind of thing where, well, that means it's not a masterpiece if the masterpiece is buried. But nevertheless, the stuff that I like about this movie, I like so much that I'm able to forgive the stuff I don't like. Agreed. Why don't uh, we talk about the stuff we like? Yeah. The stu- I, why don't you start? What are, what are some of your favorite things about, about the movie? Well, let's see. Uh, let's just start with the setting and the look at the film. I, I really like how the movie uses an alternative reality and a city that's kind of made up of matte paintings and a select set of, of colors. It's, it's a very unusual setting, which is perfect for the unusual characters that we, that we run into. Uh, and, of course, the matte paintings are, are intentionally supposed to look a bit unreal. Right. In other, in any other movie, it would look a bit chintzy, but but here it works. It it, it captures the comic strip feel and it gives it a very bold look. That's what I like about it. Um, you know, in many cases, when a comic book or, or or a comic strip concept is translated to film, there's this tendency by the movie makers to try and make these larger than life concepts make sense and and try to ground them in some semblance of reality because they feel it's it, that's how they're supposed to attract a wider audience besides the comic book fans but however in the in, in the case of Dick Tracy it was already a widely popular newspaper strip in its day and while it was probably not as widely circulated or as well known um in the late 80s and early 1990s, at least in the U.S., it was able to gain a widespread audience on its own merits. And, and, I, and I admire how this movie decided to, to take a chance and, and just capture the original feel of the comic strip the way it is and, and, just, and just trusting that the audience will jump in and enjoy it. 
Yeah, the set's by, uh, it's Richard Silbert, I believe, is the, the set designer. He won an Oscar uh, for this movie, and Vittorio Storaro was the costumer. Yeah, this thing is so gorgeous to look at. And it's sort of funny that they, they you know, concentrate so heavily on the colors, when, of course, most people think of Dick Tracy in black and white, because it was, it was black and white six out of seven days a week. But, uh, you know, it's funny you were talking about, you know, your history with Dick Tracy. I really didn't read the, the strip in the paper when I'm... How I came to it was through the Treasury edition that DC Comics put out in the mid-70s. They did a one-off Dick Tracy Treasury comic, and they reprinted an entire uh, series of Sundays where it's Dick Tracy versus Flattop. And, uh, you know, I bought that, and I loved it. I read it. I just read it a thousand times. And well, I was just going to ask, was that the Flat Top story where Flat Top actually kidnaps Dick Tracy and everyone yes. believes he's dead? Yes. Oh, that, yeah, yeah. I it's a that, but... wonderful story. And at the time, you know, I didn't draw any distinction between Dick Tracy and Batman or because it was all in a comic book. Didn't mean, you know, I didn't it didn't matter to me. And so I didn't even notice the sort of strange format. You know, that it was like, wow, every third strip has that Dick Tracy header, and like it didn't read like a typical comic book, but I didn't care. Uh, Well, they kept repeating themselves every third panel just to catch you up on what you just read. It's like, yeah, oh, I've been kidnapped, and a couple of minutes later, Dick Tracy's been kidnapped, and a couple of (laughs) minutes, Dick Tracy's still kidnapped. Okay, I get it. Uh, But I loved it. I just loved it. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I really appreciated that they, that Warren Beatty pushed for this aesthetic. Uh, This film, just to give a little bit of a history, this this thing uh, lingered in development hell, as they call it, for many, many years. Different directors came and went. Steven Spielberg was attached at one point. John Landis. uh, Richard Benjamin was going to do it when it was supposed to be a low-budget thing. Originally, there was a script by Tom Mankiewicz, who wrote Ooh. Superman the movie? And right, right. Uh, the the I saw an interview with him where he talked about the original opening was going to be a guy who was uh, like a cop or something, one of Dick Tracy's men who has been murdered. Except he's laying on his deathbed or in his hospital bed, and he's and he's giving a description to a police sketch artist about who it was that shot him. And the guy's getting he's just crazy. He's got a trench coat and a hat, blah blah blah. And the guy dies. Just as the guy dies, he looks at the sketch, and the sketch isn't finished yet, and the sketch has no face. It has everything else. It has the head, the hat, but there's no face on it. And the guy goes, that's him. And, of course, it's the blank that he's talking about, and that was the opening of the movie. And I thought, boy, that sounds terrific. That sounded like a really interesting – and you could see why, after the success of Superman, that they would turn to Tom Mankiewicz and figure, well, this guy's got it. You know, knock, these guys got it figured out how to make these adaptations. But we never got to see that movie, unfortunately, which would have been, I think, really interesting. Because I think oh, Tom, yeah. Tom Mankiewicz is the secret weapon in the Superman the movie. But anyway, it, it found its way to Warren Beatty finally. And when he got it, he took it over and pushed for this very, very interesting look. And, of course, he brought in all of his pals to be in the movie. And oh, yes. One of my favorite things, aside from the sets we talked about, are the villains. I mean, Al Pacino as Big Boy Caprice, I think, is hysterical. Most people know Al Pacino loves to yell in movies. Yes, uh, and yes so he does. He gets to yell throughout this entire movie. Uh, mm-hmm. I love the whole bit about, you're not out, you're not out. When you are dead, then you are out. I love that whole bit. I mean, Big Boy Caprice is a very strange sort of homunculus, not, not homunculus, that's more but like a, this hunchbacked guy. He sort of, he walks, walks along the sets like a crab almost. Uh, he gets to slap around Madonna a bit, which I think probably right. a lot of people are envious of. And, uh, you know, he's, it's truly a, 
bizarro comedic performance. You know, <laughs> said he just he really does, and you can see he just sinks his teeth into this ridiculous role. Right, and talking about seeking his teeth, he is chewing up the scenery, and he's hardly leaving a portion for his co-stars, I'll tell you. But, but you know, I, I, I love it because he's obviously having a grand time of it. I mean, that scene where he's choreographing Madonna and the showgirls in that more <laughs> number, dancing along and singing along and <laughs> giving the instructions. Or, or, or later, when remember when he discovers that his office is bugged and his reaction to it? I mean, it's just... Yeah, when the coffee I, drops are dripping down right, on the land. Yes, yes. And, and he wasn't yelling there he was he was whispering because he realized he was bugged but oh my god the 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 look and it, it was just so cartoony it was just it was just amazing and 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 i love the bit how he always does these um oh what's what's the word Apocryphal. He does these apocryphal quotes from Benjamin Franklin or oh, Thomas right, and Jefferson get them all wrong right yeah right but but at least he gives them not quite proper credit <laughs> Yeah, he's like so and so Washington, George Washington. You're like that's right. not right. He didn't say yep. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the villains in this are great. I mean, uh, R. G. Armstrong, the the great character actor, plays Pruneface, uh, who he doesn't get a lot to do, but I just enjoy looking at him. The the makeup for Pruneface is so well done uh, that it looks really great. And uh, yes, yes. Um, I absolutely love Dustin Hoffman as Mumbles. I oh, mean, he gosh. is so friggin' funny. And he gives the police statement. And then uh, yes, Dick, yes. Dick Tracy's like, okay, you have a statement. And they cut to the stenographer, who is Kathy Bates, funnily enough. And she's like, his, his, his what? His, you know, oh my. <laughs> That's right. And, and that pays off later. We actually find that out later, too. Right, uh, because they, they're recording it secretly mm-hmm. and they slow it down. And then you actually hear the voice of Dustin Hoffman. Oh, he is so right. funny in that part. Oh, oh, God. It was. Yeah, he he's able to steal the shows in those interrogation scenes. The one where he's in the striped shorts and then the one later with, with uh, when when he slows down the thing and it says, big boy did it, big boy did it. And he's like pleading, oh, no, no, blah, 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 blah. You know, and then, and then at the end, he, he talks normal. <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah, at the very end, yeah, he finally just gives up, gives Big Boy up, and he just talks like regular Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, yeah. And, and and that's interesting, too, because in the comic strip, he never had, uh, Mumbles never had a speech impediment. He was intentionally talking like that. <laughs> so so the, so they, they, they kind of honored that, that aspect of, of, of the strip. But, uh, but again, I, I think he was able to steal the show just because Al Pacino was not in any of those scenes. Yeah, it's, except there's, um, uh, who else is in that? James Caan is in it. Uh, mm-hmm. As the guy Speldoni, who is the one that uh, refuses to join in with Big Boy Caprice, and he gets murdered, of course, uh, in a scene that's a little too reminiscent of the 1989 Batman movie, for, yes. for my taste. I mean, unfortunately, I think there is a lot. You can almost, I mean, this movie was in development with Beatty starting in 85, but you really can feel like Disney got their hands on it uh, after Batman became such a mega hit and sort of tried to, you know, push it in that direction. I mean, they have Danny Elfman doing the music. Yes, yes, which was, which was, yeah, it, it was brilliant. I mean, yes, I'll, I'll admit there were a number of scenes in Dick Tracy that sound almost interchangeable to the score that was done on the Batman film, but I think he was riding high on his success of, of the, the 1989 Batman film at the time. I mean, there, there was almost not a movie coming out that didn't have a Danny Elfman score. Yeah, yeah, he was, yeah he, was, he was very, very busy. But I, getting back to a Mumbles, I didn't want to forget this. I, yes, love yes. The, I love that Dustin Hoffman is able to convey what he's getting across, even though he's mumbling. And after he, after they reveal to him that they've been taping him and they slow it down and you hear, you know, Big Boy did it. And he's going, going hey, bleh, hey, bleh, and he's pointing it. And you just know what he's trying to say. 
Even though you can't understand him. I could have watched a whole movie of Mumbles uh, just being pinned down by Dick Tracy. I think that's so funny. And for, for a comic book action movie, this is a lot of laughs. I mean, there's yes. a lot of genuine laughs. I mean, there's some stuff. Warren Beatty has some really funny lines. There's a this great bit where they, he brings Big Boy Caprice into the station. No, he brings um, Flat Top and uh, what's his name? The, what's the, the one that Flat Top's always paired with? Not Itchy. 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 Yes. And, and they threaten Dick Tracy. And uh, Dick Tracy says, uh, he turns to Pat Patton and he's like, take the bad men away. They scare me. I just, I love the way Warren Beatty just gives that a little bit. Of, like, he's really good in this movie. And apparently they had originally tested some makeup on Warren Beatty to make him look like the version that you see in the comic strip with the lantern yes, jaw. Yes, yes. I, I heard about that. Yeah, they, they made the nose and it only worked in the two angles that, um, that Dick Tracy is normally portrayed in in the comic strip, you know that that's that sharp profile and then that slightly three quarter view. But in any other angle, like from the front or when he's turning his head, it just didn't look right. right. So, in fact, I remember reading in an interview somewhere that Warren Beatty originally didn't want to play Dick Tracy uh, because he said, "I don't look like Dick Tracy. I shouldn't be playing him." But then he kind of later realized, well, nobody looks like Dick Tracy. <laughs> so, you know, I guess I could do as good a job as nobody. In fact, I, I, I understand that Clint Eastwood and Dan Aykroyd were, um, were earlier contenders for the Dan role. Dan Aykroyd? Wow. I've, yeah. never heard, I've heard Clint Eastwood, but Dan Aykroyd, that one, I'm, my, my head shakes at that. that I <laughs> well, you know, Sean, Sean Young was originally pegged to play Tress Trueheart, I believe. Is there ever, Te- was there ever? Sorry, ever, Tess ever, Trueheart. I'm yeah. Speaking. Is there any role that she was not originally scheduled to do that she didn't eventually <laughs> lose due to her kooky behavior? I mean, she was supposed to be Catwoman. She was supposed That's to be right. Vicky Vale. She just keeps getting, the, she, she kept getting chances to do these movies and then it never quite worked out. But yeah, I, I love Glenn Headley as Tess Trueheart. Uh, I, I think oh, yes. Glenn Headley is wonderful. And this kind of leads me into a, into a section that I think is not so great about the movie is mm. the whole Madonna stuff. Uh, okay. Uh, what, what do you think? Right? Do you agree with that? or? Well, let's see. Um, where to begin? Where to begin? <laughs> I, I think Madonna doesn't quite get enough credit. I mean, mm, why don't you start first? Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. All right. I, I I'm, 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 let me compose my thoughts properly here because I don't want to be misunderstood, as Samantha Fox would say. <laughs> you and the Samantha Fox. Uh, yeah, I, I don't have any great issue with Madonna. I don't think she's a very good actress. And so... I think she's given way too much to do here. Not that being Breathless Mahoney requires, you know, some great acting skill. I just think there's she just she's just in the movie too much. I think there's too many songs, uh, too many Madonna songs. And I didn't believe for one moment that Dick Tracy was remotely tempted by her away from Tess Trueheart. And that that's that, oh. that's one of the hooks of the movie is that, ooh, is he going to stay with Tess Trueheart? Is he going to go? Is he tempted by Breathless Mahoney? I never bought that for one moment. And maybe because I no, like Glenn Headley so much that I was just like, please, this is not even, I'm not yeah. buying this angle at all. Right. I mean, just, just to backtrack, Glenn Headley's portrayal of Tress, Tess Trueheart was just wonderful. I mean, she'd take no nonsense. Yeah. I like that she was not the stereotypical 1930s, quote, dame type of character. Yep. In fact, when the kid says he doesn't like Dame, she quickly responds, "Good, me neither." You know, it's just perfect. I love when it's she's perfect. looking when she's looking away, and the kid steals five bucks off the table. And <laughs> yes, she never, yes. She never looks up, and she goes, "You want me to break your arm?" And he just slowly right. puts the money back on the table. <laughs> yeah, she was quick to call him out, and I think I think that impressed the kid almost right. as much as later when she throws the ball in the trash can and makes the lid come down. You know, right, right. Um, but 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 as far as Madonna and Breathless Mahoney. It, it, you know, a lot of these characters are very two-dimensional. Um, Literally. Th- 
Literally, yes, <laughs> because they come from a two-dimensional comic strip, and I think they're supposed to come off as a little bit two-dimensional in this movie. Um, you know, the good guys are ultimately good, the criminals are just evil and have no redeeming qualities. But, you know, Breathless Mahoney was one of those few characters that actually blurred the line a little between good and bad. And 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 I don't think... I, I did not buy Tracy um, being tempted by... Uh, by Mahoney for a second either. And I don't think he was supposed to be. I mean, he, his whole motivation um, in the relationship, if you call it that, was to get her to testify because he knew from finding the earring at the site of, of Lip Manless's disappearance that she knew what happened to him, that she knew that Big Boy killed him and, and was just trying to get him to testify. I, I think he was, I think he was playing her. Yeah. But it doesn't. It doesn't explicitly say that, and and actually, in a in a movie like this, it should be explicitly said, because yeah. everything else was. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I, I feel like the movie is trying to give you a little bit of that tension, and I just didn't. And and I just don't think. Again, I no. I, when you've got these heavy hitters playing the other villains, uh, right. It's just to me, it's like she's just very flat. When you get to her, her line readings are just very, you know. I get a lot of that, or whatever. to me, they're just they're just kind of not much there, and there's just way too many, and also just way too many songs. I think the songs are good. Um, I always get my man, and some of the other ones. I think yep. there are some terrific songs, but there's like half a dozen, and I just like Dick Tracy's not a musical. I don't need this many songs in a Dick Tracy movie. That, that's true. I did enjoy the song and dance numbers. I'll admit. Mm-hmm. Um, one one thing that was uh, consistent about about Breathless is that you know she she had a straightforward attitude about how she feels. She would always speak her mind and, and she was brave in that respect. I mean, she would talk about, talk to lips manless and say, I get sick when you eat and, 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 and making a, 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 a jibe about his weight and uh, lips kind of tolerated that aspect of, of breathless. And we discovered very quick that, that big boy caprice would have none of that. Mm-hmm. And, but it, but um, let's see. I, w- I was watching this with my with, with my son, the first time he ever saw it, or ever even heard of Dick Tracy, because I don't think he ever came across my my comic book collection in that in that part of that that particular box. But um, she she mentioned that while uh, while uh, Madonna looked pretty, she also looked scary. And I, I think there was, and maybe part of that was the makeup, part of it may have been the the mood lighting. But you know, there was a darkness that resonated with her character. So I, I don't believe Madonna was given enough credit in that aspect of her performance. Hmm. Okay, I could see that. But but um, I, I'd like to think that Madonna improves as an actress a little bit later. I haven't actually seen later films where she was in, so I honestly don't know. Yeah, I, I've seen her in a couple other things, and I, I, she just to me, it's she's just being Madonna in these movies. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, as much I've mentioned this before, and I certainly have a whole other show about it, but like. You know, my, my admiration and love for Bob Dylan knows no bounds, but he can't be in movies either because he just can't help being Bob Dylan. He just, sure. he's, he's not able to not be Bob Dylan, and so you put him in a movie and it just takes you out. And so when you're, when you're trying to bring people into this very unique world, to me she sticks out just badly, you know, as a contemporary. She, I, I, I forget that I'm looking at Warren Beatty after a while, and I just think it's Dick Tracy, but I can never be conscious of that it's anything other than Madonna. That said... I will defend her in this one instance because I remember at the time this movie was reviewed back when they had movie review shows on television uh, by Rex Reed, the famous Mm. critic. And Rex Reed tore this movie uh, apart by saying the only person that could ever play Breathless Mahoney is Marilyn Monroe and why they gave it to Madonna. I don't know. I'm like, well, Marilyn Monroe's dead. 
can't you can't hold that against the movie that they didn't cast Marilyn Monroe, right? Like he was literally blaming the movie for not casting someone who's been dead for three decades. I was sort of like, I, what do you want them to do? Warren Beatty's got a lot of pull. He doesn't have that much pull. I mean, what are you talking about? So that was the one instance where I sort of def- felt like I had to defend the Madonna part of it a little because it's like, well, what do you want him to do? But but you know, right. okay. Well, you know, the, the, it's very interesting that they decided to base Breathless Mahoney on Marilyn Monroe because that's not actually how she was portrayed in in the in the comic strip. In the comic strip, she I think she was more based on Veronica Lake. Right, because she has that peekaboo hairstyle. Right, but you know, she wasn't really that beautiful when she was originally drawn by Chester Gould. Well, oh, was anybody beautiful? Well, <laughs> well, Shag may find the comic strip version hot, I suppose, <laughs> but but she had a very hardened face, and and you know, the 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 play on the breathless name of the comic strip character was was actually due to the fact that in her story she was always on the run from the law. Ah, okay. It had nothing to do with her being you know sensual or or, right. or a lounge singer. So it was a bit of a departure there, but yeah, uh, the the fact that they were doing a a Marilyn Monroe spoof um, well, was, I guess, an, an interesting take, and it kind of it, it kind of fit the time period that they were trying to portray in the film as well. But but yeah, that <laughs> that comment by Rex Reed, I had not heard that until yeah. five minutes ago. That's I, 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 I only saw it one time, and I saw it, you know, let's see, 1990, so I saw it 26 years ago, and I have never forgotten it, because I just thought that's the most absurd criticism. I mean, if you're going to go by that, you can blame every every movie is inferior because it doesn't have Spencer Tracy in it. Well, right. <laughs> like, what do you want it to do? So, um, so are we? So are we thinking there's nepotism involved here because Madonna was Warren Beatty's um, uh, Warren and Beatty and Madonna were an item at the time, correct? Yes, they were, and he's in her documentary from the Truth or Dare. Uh, yeah, so they, yeah, oh, absolutely. I assume that. I mean, I'm sure that Disney was thrilled to have somebody. Madonna in 1990 was. You know, at the apex of her popularity, so I'm sure that it was a big get for them. But I'm sure that yeah, if they were not dating, I don't think she. W- I don't think she would be yeah. in the movie as much as she is if he was not dating her. Yeah. Uh, well, I was just saying it's unfortunate that that Disney thought they had a, a big thing with Madonna because yeah, when you cast Madonna in a in a movie in a leading female role, then the emphasis is expected to fall on her. So that just means that you know, Tress. Uh, sorry, I keep saying Tress when I mean to say Tess, but but but. <laughs> But Glenn, Glenn Headley's role, essentially, was sadly underserved, uh, underutilized in the movie because of that emphasis on Madonna, I feel. Yeah, and, and you know, that nepotism sort of cuts both ways because, of course, you said this this cast that you've got, you could only could have gotten it if it Warren Beatty was doing it. I mean, this movie, right. this movie features uh, Godfather reunions. I mean, it's mm-hmm. got James Caan and Al Pacino in a scene together. It's got a Bonnie and Clyde reunion because you've got Warren Beatty and Estelle Parsons, who plays Tess Trueheart's mother. Uh, you've got a sort of it's not a misery reunion because the movie came out the same year, but this movie also has James Caan and Kathy Bates. So there, I mean, this is this is really an ama- and and a lot of the smaller roles are filled by veteran character actors who, for some of whom, this was their last film. I mean, these guys were old. A lot of the guys that are in the uh, flop house that uh, the meeting between um, the district attorney played by Dick Van Dyke. Dick, yes. Van, Dick Van Dyke is in this movie. I don't know oh, why he is, but I'm so happy that he is because who doesn't well, love Dick Van Dyke? Oh, I know, I know. I actually read Dick's um, memoir, and um, I, I, I call him Dick and not Mr. Van Dyke because I actually met him. He signed my wow. memoir, and he said, "Call me Dick." So that's what I'm going to do. Aww. And he, <laughs> and he said that um, he he said no. He never said yes to the role according to his memoir, and yet he somehow ended up in the film because Warren Beatty <laughs> wouldn't take no for an answer. <laughs> Um, he, he found out later that that basically he he was um, 
um, Warren Beatty told him that he was selected for this particular role as D.A. Fletcher because, you know, the audience would not suspect that he was actually owned by Big Boy Caprice's mob because, you know, Dick Van Dyke is such a goody two-shoes that, that uh, to find out that he was actually on the take would have, would have just been a shock to the audience, and I, and, I, and I believe it was. There was also something else revealed in his memoir where that, that scene where D.A. Fletcher does his death fall in the hotel room. Right, and he hits the They the, took the like six takes. Yeah. Yes, yes. He, the, they, took, they took six takes. Yes, he's falling between this, this nightstand and this iron cot. And on the sixth take, he actually hit his shoulder at, uh, uh, on the iron cot and tore his clavicle loose. Oof. They actually had to tape him up to do his remaining scenes. He... Um, I, th- I think it was near the end, fortunately. So I think he only had like one or two scenes left to do. But, uh, but yeah, uh, I think he also made a comment that he should have complained there was no stunt coordinator, but he decided not to. Oh, what a trooper! Yeah, yeah, it's a great fall too. You see it on the you see it on the screen. I mean, it really is quite a dramatic fall when he uh, when he gets it. But uh, yeah. Uh, speaking of that, you talk about the a little bit of the violence. Uh, one of the things that I think a lot of people that aren't familiar with Dick Tracy of the 40s, which most people are not at this point, but like the, the 40s Dick Tracy trip is, is pretty violent. Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, in the, the, the flat top storyline that I read and I, in the aforementioned Treasury comic, there were, somebody gets a glass shard in the eye, mm-hmm. flat top gets shot in the chin, uh, and the bullet sails through his face. And you see yes. it. It sails through mm-hmm. his face. He gets caught in some pincers at the end, and that's how he drowns. I mean, like, it's a very hard, violent strip. Now, of course, it got dialed down over the course of the intervening decades. And this movie seems to have that kind of flavor in fits and starts. The opening scene with the five villains playing cards, the brow, little face, the rodent. Uh, yes, I forget shoulders. Who the shoulders. Shoulders was another one. Yeah. Yes, and, and I love how they were all shot, and then they take their identification. Itchy and Itchy and Flat Top shoot them all. Nobody bleeds, of course. Right. Uh, just like in the comic strip, and uh, <laughs> so it's kind of like that cartoony violence where everybody gets killed, but nobody nobody bleeds. And um, but they 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 shoot them all. They take their identification, and the police show up, going, "Well, we have no idea who they are." <laughs> yeah, you can't tell from the guy who's got a giant head. <laughs> His head is the size of a of a barrel with a tiny this guy little with, face. This guy with the little face and this guy with the shoulders and this guy with the big brow. I have no idea who they are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, as a as a, a comic book fan, like, what do you think about uh, using so many good villains and then just tossing them off like that? Because I mean, right. this, this this movie literally uses, I think, every Dick Tracy villain available and kills a lot of them off within just a couple of minutes i mean right. you know that's that do you feel like that's kind of a, a, a i don't know kind of an insult to these characters to waste them so indiscriminately like that well let's see Let, let's start with the fact that he uses so many criminals because um you know from my understanding dick tracy battled these criminals individually in his comic strip adventures they've never really ganged up at him on him at once in in fact um there was this one panel gag in one of my Dick Tracy Comics Monthlies, Volume One, Number Twenty Five, where wow, um, <laughs> whereby Tracy is actually facing eleven of his adversaries in a room, including Flat Top, the Brow, Prune Face, um, Rodent, the Blank is there as well, and Tracy's word balloon actually says, "What's the idea?" And on the right, you watching from the entryway is, is Chester Gould himself holding his ink pen and a block of art gum, which I know because there's an arrow pointing to it with the words <laughs> "art gum." On there, and, and Gould is saying, I just wanted to see how you'd handle them all at once. 
Wow. Because that's never been done. And uh, it's unfortunate that Gould didn't, leave the, didn't live uh, to, to see the film, though, though yeah. I wonder how much of a stickler he would have been uh, in terms of the movie not conforming to the comic strip con- continuity. Because I already told you about Breathless Mahoney earlier, but um, this movie seems to be set in the 1930s, and, and many of these characters made their appearances much later in the 40s and 50s. In fact, some like Pruneface and the Brow, they were actually German spies during World War II. They were not gangsters like Flattop was. Interesting. I mean, I figure Gould couldn't have been that picky because, of course, there were half a dozen Dick Tracy movies in the forties. That right, you know, but they were yeah, but they were more straight laced uh, detective stories, I believe. I don't think they were quite as um, exaggerated um, senses of reality or or the the eccentricities of of the comic strip were, were captured as much as they were in this Beatty film. Yeah, I've seen a couple of them, and I always kind of feel like, eh, they're just kind of generic, and, you know, I mean, maybe they have some virtues that I haven't been able to tap into, but to me, I'm like, this really doesn't feel like Dick Tracy, the Dick Tracy I know, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the movie, I mean, it's a Disney movie, it was produced by Disney, it was released under their Touchstone label, because it had a little more violence than they had sort of planned, but, like I said, I feel the movie lurches between that kind of... A little edgy thing with the violence. I mean, this, you mentioned that there's no blood, but the scene of where the five guys get it in the beginning is really wonderfully staged and mm-hmm. very intense. And you see them like their bodies go like, you know, like that, yep. right, you know, because they get hit by the machine guns. But then you have right, all right. this, you have all the stuff with Charlie Cosmo as the kid, the orphan that Dick Tracy befriends. And mm-hmm. to me, that is right out of like you know a, a G-rated Disney movie. And yeah, the, that, the when do we eat montage, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. and I, I, you know, I have my own sort of feelings. I don't like seeing movies about little. I don't like little kids put in movies with adults because I feel like the movie just becomes about the little kid. I don't like movie. I don't mind movies about little kids because then if they're the start like the Goonies or something. But to me, I, I the and Charlie Cosmo is fine as yes. the kid. Uh, I just uh, those scenes are like my least favorite, and there's a lot of scenes. Uh, I mean, when he decides to change his name officially, Dick Tracy Jr. That's right. sweet, and I like the scene where the kid is is spying on Dick Tracy as he's after he's been kidnapped by Big Boy Caprice, and Big Boy offers him a, a payoff. Right, and, right. And Dick Tracy says, "Are you trying to, you know, is that for me?" And Big Boy's like, "You know, yeah." And he says, "Well, then you are guilty of trying to bribe an officer of the law." And he slaps the money back in Big Boy's face, and they cut to the kid, and he's like cheering because he knows Dick Tracy's a stand-up guy. Like, I liked all that stuff, but yeah, yeah. it's it's just one of those like. Eh, too much Madonna, too much kid. Give, give me more prune face. Give me more big boy Capri. I want more of these. <laughs> right, right. These, I mean, yeah. Catherine O'Hara is in this movie. The great Catherine O'Hara plays a villain, and she has no lines. She has one scene in, in the montage, and right, that's, that's, right. you never see her again after that. I'm like, well, what a waste. Even the brilliant Catherine O'Hara, so we can have another Madonna song? <laughs> <laughs> well, at least she doesn't get killed off in that, well, you know, in that climactic New Year's Eve shootout at Club Ritz like everyone else. And, and going back to that point you were asking what how i felt about killing off all the characters like they did that actually happened in the original stories like you know the 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 treasury edition with flat top you saw flat top get killed yeah just the was not ceremonial not sentimental about his villains right but you know flat top had a son called flat top jr <laughs> who happened to look like his dad and Some i guess that's why you know, so so he would come back and he would come back in a later story and and try to avenge his father's death by going after tracy you know so and and that's what happened with a lot of his villains is usually after one or two um adventures you know they would they would meet some kind of poetic justice end 
Um, I think Mumbles was like Batman's Joker. He would appear to meet his death, but then he would show up again with some kind of half, half, uh, half baked explanation of how he survived. And but, but others, you know, they either had a child or a relative or a loved one or something <laughs> that would that would be just as evil and go after Tracy later um, for killing my husband, father, brother, sister, whatever. Um, but but there are many more outlandish characters um, in in Tracy's comic strip history to pull from if they ever decide to do a sequel. Uh, <laughs> well, that's, you, that's, you, it's interesting that you bring that up because of mm-hmm. course uh, Dick, Warren Beatty still owns the rights to Dick Tracy. There was a big lawsuit about that because apparently Tribune Media Services said he doesn't have the rights, and he said I do have the rights, and it went to court. And uh, Born Beatty was vindicated. He still has the rights. And in fact, in 2008, he produced a TV special, a Dick Tracy TV special for Turner Classic Movies, where he plays Dick Tracy. Uh, I've never seen it. It's only aired apparently the one time. It's never been put on uh, home entertainment. So, And I've never been able to find it on YouTube. So I've never seen it. But that's pretty remarkable that Warren Beatty appeared as Dick Tracy in a TV special basically kind of like to keep the, the fires burning. And he, he said at a, at a CinemaCon this very year, he said at CinemaCon he still intends to make a sequel. Uh, now, of course, he would not be playing Dick Tracy because he's like 75 now. But that's an interesting idea. I mean, would you, do you, want, would you want to see a, a Warren Beatty sequel to this movie? Well, you know, I, I, I believe I would if Mr. Beatty was playing Dick Tracy and actually would wear the Tracy nose prosthetic and, <laughs> and just shoot him from the profile in the three-quarter angle all the time. I mean, it, it worked in the comic strip. It can work in the movie. Why not? Uh, um, and there were many more outlandish characters in Tracy's comic strip history that they can pull from in a sequel. Uh, there was actually one point where they had an alien civilization from the moon that showed up. <laughs> Uh, they were called the Moon People, of course. Um, one of them actually married Junior. Her name was Mista the Moon Maid. You know, wow. It, it was the 1960s, so what do you, <laughs> what do you expect? I seem but, to remember but, there was a model kit, a Dick Tracy like, Moon Rider model kit that they advertised in the 60s, and I remember just being like baffled, like, Dick Tracy goes to the moon? What? Is that a thing? <laughs> I have no idea. Why not? If Batman can go to, uh, face aliens in his comic book, why, so. why can't Trace? Why can't Dick Tracy? Indeed. Um, but 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 you know, uh, th- I, I find it sounds like we're summing up. Are we summing up, or is there more? Well, we things we, to talk we, about? If, if there's more, there's there's a couple other things I do want to mention about the movie. Some of the things I do like about this movie. We spent a little time talking about the stuff we didn't like, but the stuff that I and the, the reasons I think this thing is in is in pieces, sort of a masterpiece. Is that I love that Warren Beatty embraces the surreal surreality uh, of of this whole world. I mean, there's a, this great montage where he, uh, he's installed um, a bug. In Big Boy Caprice's office, and he's right. he's and so all of Big Boy Caprice's actions are being taped by Michael J. Pollard, who plays Bug. Oh, yes. uh, again, another guy from uh, Bonnie and Clyde, and so Dick Tracy always has the drop on Big Boy Caprice, and it's this big montage of of, of Big Boy <sighs> Caprice getting, and it, the montage is fan. Fantastic, and there's this yes. wonderful there's this wonderful scene in front of a brick wall where you've got about a dozen top hatted bad guys, and they're they're set in a formation like they're bowling pins. Yes, Dick, Dick Tracy just turns up and punches one of them, and they all fall in succession. And I just yeah. love that Warren Beatty embraced that ridiculousness of this is Dick Tracy. This is not meant to be realistic, and so that whole sequence I just love. And to me, it's like this is the stuff that where. 
as you talked about, so many comic books want to become comic book film adaptations want to go realistic, and he decided no, no, let's go the other way. Let's embrace the cartoony unreality of this. And I, I think he just nailed it. I could watch that montage all day and all night. I think it's so brilliantly composed, scored. The music is great, and all these shots of Bigger Caprice looking frustrated. Because he's, yes. he's getting reports on the phone that this 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 heist has been foiled. This thing is, and he's like rolling his eyes. He's, oh, he's so mad at Dick Tracy. That stuff is great, and that's the stuff that I'm like, this is a masterpiece. This these chunks of the movie are a masterpiece. Yes, and this goes back to your point about all the violence. It's cartoon violence. I mean, yeah. knocking down eight men in a single punch, and they're all <laughs> colored differently too. They're yeah. all wearing different colored clothes. Uh, but you know, the scene immediately afterwards, he punches he punches a a, a, a thug in the jaw, and he literally flips over that's backwards, right, yeah. head over heels. <laughs> you know, it's just like in the comic strip. All that's missing are just the visible stars. You know, it, it was brilliant, and that and that last part of the montage where Mumbles is shaking the bag of what the take was, and this one little dollar bill just flutters down on top <laughs> of the desk to just show that they're not making any money off of this thing was just um, it, it, it was hilarious. There are scenes like that where they remind us that this movie is supposed to be a comic strip brought to life that are just brilliant. Um, the, the, there's an earlier scene where Tracy is fighting Steve the Tramp, and, and I know it's Steve the Tramp because I've read the story of the kid. Right. And and I'm talking about the guy that wouldn't give the kid a piece of chicken. So <laughs> you know where he's where he's punching him in that squatter shack, and the walls are like shifting to one side and shifting to the other side, to just kind of show that 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 the fight is just knocking around, just like just like how you'd see it in an animated cartoon. And then of course the whole the whole shack collapses at the end of the scene. And and speaking of speaking of reenacting a, a comic strip, have you noticed that there are some panels? And I'm sorry, I don't mean to say panels. There are some scenes that are essentially reenacting a still frame of a dramatic comic panel where whereby like when the lab boys are telling Tracy that there are no fingerprints on the walnuts and you see Tracy in the front his face and his hand holding the walnut shells on the right and close up and you see the two forensic people in the background and they're both in sharp focus by the way right right but they're all delivering their lines and they're they're holding a very steady pose they're not moving so it's almost like reading a comic strip panel there. And I thought that was, you know, you, you, you would look at that in any other film and it's like, these are just talking heads. But somehow I, I love that. That's interesting. I didn't thought about that, but you're, but you're right. There is a lot of that kind of stuff. That's, that brings up something that I wanted to ask you about. Because, of course, Dick Tracy was famous in the comic strip. for, And you, you mentioned it with the, the, the bit about the pinup by Trista Gould with the little arrows pointing yes. and explaining. Now, there's a scene early on in the movie where he discovers that earring, which you already mentioned, after Lips Manless gets the cement overcoat, um, which is played by Paul Servino. We didn't mention the Lips Manless yes. played by Paul Servino. But, but uh, Dick Tracy discovers the earring and he picks it up and when he picks it up it becomes a slow motion shot and it it, it holds on that earring and i remember thinking that's a weird shot to hold on because it's just you know okay we all can see that it's an earring why are we doing and then i think is that warren Beatty's cinematic representation of those arrows is that what he's doing with that shot he doesn't want to literally have an arrow on screen and that's Mm -hmm. what he's translating that visually of look a clue Right. I feel like that's what he's doing with that shot. Yeah, I, I believe so. And, you know, I believe that's the only time I see slow motion in that film. I don't recall seeing anything else in slow motion, even yeah. uh, even when, like, 
you would expect to see. Well, maybe I've seen too much Jerry Bruckheimer and um, and um, recent movies where they overdo the slow motion. But you'd almost expect to see that slow motion type of stuff during the massacre at Club Ritz. But um, if it was directed by Zack Snyder, yes. Yeah, exactly. Zack Snyder. That's the hours. name I was. Yeah. That's the name I was trying to remember. Yeah. <laughs> right, like I could forget that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> But um, but yeah, that, that I I think so, and I I think if they I, I know they were holding on that in particular, and then when they show the other earring being worn by Breathless Mahoney uh, later, you know it, it pays off there that you know oh that's that's why they held on the earring it, it placed and right. and Tracy knows that she was there, and I think when Tracy does that look like ooh. You know, where people thought, oh, she he's taken by Madonna's uh, Breathless Mahoney. He's he's infatuated with her. I think it was more like he saw the clue and he's like, aha, here's a witness. <laughs> yeah. Know, going yeah. back to what I was saying earlier that I think he was just pretending to uh, to be interested in her to get her to testify. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, where in your mind is this does this fit in the sort of grand hierarchy of comic book movies? Uh, somebody oh. asked me a couple days ago to give them a list of my favorite comic book movies. And I, I keep wanting to put this near the top because, again, the, the stuff that I don't like, I genuinely have problems with. But the stuff I do like, I just love so much that I really feel like this belongs in my like, personal top five of great comic book adaptation. Yeah, I, I would put it in my top five. I'm not quite sure where it would rank um, alongside the, the Batman film of 1989 and, and The Dark Knight, which I thought was probably the best Batman movie I've seen. Mm-hmm. And Superman the movie, of course, which yes. is another good adaptation of the original. Um, but then again, I have Green Lantern in my top ten, so that might uh, destroy some credibility. Podcast over! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think this is this is really, really terrific. And like I said, I, we've talked about the sequel. I would absolutely be happy to see... A, a, I would love to see another Dick Tracy movie, period. Uh, whether Warren Beatty should do it, I don't know. He's got a movie coming out this year called Rules Don't Apply, and uh, it'll be his first movie in, as director in almost 20 years. So I don't know whether he's lost his skill or not. I've seen a couple of his other movies. I've seen Reds. I think Reds is a terrific movie, and uh, Bullworth I like. So I like him as a director, and I think he did a terrific job here. And like I said, I like Domestic Tracy. He couldn't do it again. But I really liked him uh, in in the role, and so it would be interesting if he ends up directing a Dick Tracy sequel with a different actor, because I think it would be the only time in history where you've got a director replacing himself in a sequel that he directs. I don't think you've you've ever had that, where it's like he was the star of the first movie and then just the director of the second. But there we um, go. Yes. Yeah, but make, I would make history. Yeah. But, yeah, but uh, yeah, this this was a good film. It's a fun film. That's the important thing. The the movie is fun. Uh, it, it's fun to look at. Uh, it has a great cast, as you mentioned, and, and and the fact that this cast was willing to forego their their on screen looks and put on this very grotesque makeup <laughs> and just have fun with it just shows that you know they were partly doing it as uh, as a favor to to Warren Beatty as well as just have fun. Um, it has some great jazzy songs. To your point, it may have too many of them, but they're fun. 
They're fun to listen to. They're fun to watch. Uh, it has a bit more humor than the comic strip had. Mm-hmm. And, and while it has just as much violence, it's mostly cartoon violence. So it's something that I didn't mind having, having my son watch along with me. So, you know, I, I may be overthinking this. I mean, we're not supposed to overthink this movie. We just enjoy it. I mean, if we think about it too much, we may realize that Tracy was in jail and Tess was kidnapped over the Christmas holiday. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. What did your What did your son think of it? Oh, he enjoyed it. He thought it was fun. I mean, he, you know, having seen like movies of today, you know, he was a bit uh, he was a bit less than impressed by the special effects. Though he did think that that one scene where um, the kid jumps in front of the train to lose Tracy, even though he didn't lose Tracy, but he thought that was pretty darn realistic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a true. Yeah, that's a great set of matte paintings and stop motion all it's yeah i said it's a uh, on that level it's a brilliant movie brutally you know visualized uh i mean and it was all done on sets there's no outside it's all done on the lot which is sort of amazing uh before we wrap up here i just discovered this i was going over some some factoids about the movie that's here on imdb and they talk about some of the people that were offered the role of dick tracy and it's robert redford sure paul newman wow. paul newman sure james james con not seeing that harrison ford i can see that George C. Scott. What oh my goodness! The, what the hell universe is there going to be a Dick Tracy movie starring George C. Scott? Well, well, you know what's interesting is I, I can picture George C. Scott as the voice of Tracy when I'm reading the comic strip. Yes, but not. I could, I could, yeah, but yeah. the look, no. <laughs> Come here, flat top. It's really scary. Take that, you cockroach! Yeah, uh, you, oh you, my you God. should say that, not me. I can't no, do a good George C. Scott. Turn it off! Turn it off! Uh, there's another factoid which I, you must know about this, considering your love of Samantha Fox. But it says Samantha Fox auditioned for the role of Breathless Mahoney. Yeah, she was doing some. She was doing some <laughs> acting at the time. I believe she uh, she she actually tried a, a spin in in Hollywood. Now I now I did not know that she actually tried to to play that role. If she had gotten the role, this would have been your favorite movie of all time. Perhaps, perhaps so. <laughs> Um, and you also mentioned... I'm a bit biased that way. Yeah, yes, thank, yeah. thank you for bringing that up. Now, yeah. now I have something to ask her next yeah. time I meet her. <laughs> You've met Samantha Fox briefly, just wow. enough to get an autograph on a CD. Wow, look at you! Uh, and you mentioned the the scene with Steve the Tramp. Uh, there was an action figure line for Dick Tracy because, of course, it was the Batman template, you know, which was just we got to have all this merchandise. And the, right. unfortunately, it was uh, the Dick Tracy figures were farmed out to this company. I forget who it was, but it was not Kenner or Mattel. And so they made these really grotesque looking figures and not in a good way. Uh, they all of them are really weirdly proportioned and they're they're just and they have these creepily like red lips. They really are not good figures. And they made a figure of Steve the Tramp. And uh, parents got very upset because it was considered sort of insensitive to homeless people that they had an action figure called Steve the Tramp. And apparently he was pulled from shelves and now it uh, commands a very high price on the collector's market because, uh, you know, people. Well, yes, yes. I mean, the, these um, these so-called uh, social justice warrior protests today, uh, it was not a new thing, really. No. I mean, they, there there was always somebody protesting something and and. <laughs> and it, you know, you you could take a look at the original '30s comic strip, and and they did not um, they did not portray the homeless very nicely no. in in those strips either. But again, that was a different time. That was the '40s and the '50s, and yeah. and even up to the '70s, they were like that. So I, I'm not defending it, and and I'm not saying that the that the people who objected uh, didn't have a point. But um, it, it's it's just a movie. Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it was intended to to. Um, 
to convey a message. No, and, and about I, the homeless. It, right? Yeah. And, and like and like I said, you know, you're not supposed to overthink it. Yeah. This movie is 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 playing up with the you know the broad strokes of of characters. The police chief, the you know the the gangsters. I mean, I mean, geez, all the bad guys are are physically deformed. I mean, that's the idea is that they're all mangled right. and kinds of guys. So I mean, yeah, I mean, everybody. The good guys are the good guys. The bad guys are the bad guys. It's uh, it's. I said I think it's a terrific movie. I really enjoyed watching it again, and I would. I think for a lot of comic book fans, and now that we're inundated with these movies. I think Dick Tracy kind of gets forgotten a little. It, it came out in the wake of Batman. It didn't make the kind of money that Batman made. It, it made over a hundred million, but that that was considered a disappointment in the wake of Batman earning like half a billion or whatever ridiculous amount of money it made. So, the, yeah, but I, I I don't know if I don't know if Dick Tracy would have had the following that Batman eventually no. had. I mean, they're, they're two completely different characters. It's 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 like saying that vanilla ice cream isn't very good because chocolate is better. You know? Right. And that's just a matter of taste. Yeah, I mean, so Warner, Warner, Walt Disney was was clearly hoping this would become their Batman, and it wasn't. And uh, but I think I think they made a terrific movie, and I would really recommend anybody that likes comic book adaptations to give it a try, even if you haven't read Dick Tracy. And the funny thing is, I th- I would argue, I mean, I'm not uh, certainly not knowledgeable of the strip, but when the Dick Tracy movie came out, the strip was at a relatively low ebb. In terms yes. of its, and now it's bad. Now that you've had Joe Staten drawing it for a couple of years, it's terrific. It's it's. I feel like Dick Tracy is you know the best it's been in a while. So in a weird way, it was like now would be a great time to go do a Dick Tracy movie, is to try it again and and capitalize a little bit on on that. I would think there's a little bit more of a brand awareness to it now. And I mean, good lord, now that. The, everybody is plumbing every character. I mean, they're going to make a Doc Savage movie in a couple of years. Uh, I would say give Dick Tracy another shot. I mean, why not? Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I, I would love to see it. Yeah. So uh, I think that's going to do it for Dick Tracy. Is there anything else you want to say about it, Zum? No, I think we covered everything, yes. All right. Yeah, it's just said. It's a really, really fun movie. So everybody give it a shot if you haven't seen it. So uh, Zoom, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I, I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Can, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, well... Most of my online appearances of late have been on uh, Facebook and Twitter under my own name. Um, I'm technically on medical leave from The Line It Is Drawn, that uh, weekly sketch challenge feature on the Comic Book Resources website. But I have occasionally put my hiatus on hiatus, <laughs> one, once for the landmark 300th week uh, with uh, Lady Cop. Yay! 300 years in the future, and, <laughs> and um, as well as last Friday, uh, week 306, I did a submission that I hope will be art that will soon imitate life, and I'll just leave it at that, as Big Boy would say as a misquote in one of the movies. Um, uh, while I'm technically offline, I do have 191 weeks of art submissions buried deep within the new CBR site design, if one is interested in looking for them. Uh, but you should also take the time to enjoy the works of the other brilliant line artists while you're there, even if I am not. Where else? Let's see. Oh, well, I still have my blog site, which right. I've been meaning to update, Omelette ou Fromage, which uh, can be found at zoom yukonori.blogstock. That that can I retake that? <laughs> no, you're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have this in the show notes, so it doesn't matter that you messed up the address. People will find it, and I recommend everybody should because Zoom is a superb artist. As anyone who follows the Who's Who podcast has seen, uh, his prolific. Not only is he prolific, he's superb. I mean, the stuff is great. I am looking at your Who's Who, who Zoom's Who mug right now that you. Uh, made and Shag was so nice to send me. It's it's sitting here right in front of me as we're recording. Oh, you're you're very kind. But you know when you go onto my when you go onto my blog spot, um, 
site. It it it. There's not a whole lot of art, really. You're you're going to find more posts about me. I I, I actually created that site uh, for people who don't know me to get to know me, and for those that do know me to get to know me a little bit better. So you'll find posts about the time I was attacked outside a San Francisco nightclub and the time that I was shot in the back by a Hong Kong gunman and actually died, but I did get better. And then, of course, there was the time I was nearly seduced by an evil spirit posing as my first love. You know, (laughs) things that should only happen in movies. And you did bring up Zoom's Who, which is very kind. I've I've been honored to have that small segment on your and Shag's Who's Who podcast, another fine part of the Fire and Water Network, which is called Zoom's Who, my addendum to the definitive directory of the DC universe. Um, That initially started as a longtime fan's attempt to correct what I felt was a wrong committed by the first edition of DC Comics' Who's Who, uh, where they were slighting certain long-published characters like uh, the Earth-1 Superman and the Earth-1 Wonder Woman. So I essentially created faux entries for those. Um, but now it has grown into a mad plan to create an <laughs> entire volume featuring 30-plus entries for the characters and the one place that I featured on a Zooms Who cover that I created at the beginning of this year. And the last Zooms Who entry was the Kristen Wells Superwoman. Who will be next? Who knows? I'll have to, we'll have to wait and find out. Yeah, your your uh, your half page listing for the TRS eighty Wiz Kids is my joy. Uh, I love it so much. I made it into a t shirt, which I wear to work occasionally. I just uh, I, the, I I I live in a much better world that there is who's who listing for the TRS eighty Wiz Kids. Oh well, you're you're too kind, sir. <laughs> so, it was my it was my pleasure. I I enjoyed doing that. I absolutely love it. So yeah, everybody check check with Zoom's work out. Uh, you will not be disappointed. It's amazing stuff. And for uh, this show, of course, you can find it on Twitter at Film and Water Pod. And this and the rest of the shows can be found at our network site, Film and Water Podcast.com. So Zoom, thank you once again for coming on. It's always fun to talk to you. And I really had a great time talking about Dick Tracy. I do love this movie and it was always so fun to watch it again just for the so we can talk about it here on the show. Yes, it was a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks everybody for listening, and until next week, that's a wrap. Today it seemed the world was about to end. Didn't it? Yesterday disaster waited around the bend. Well, my friend, spring is here. Back in business and ain't it grand.
Can you imagine George C. Scott as Dick Tracy? That is that is effing terrifying as an idea. The intensity of putting George C. Scott in a movie for children. Oh my God, Tess, you know, I love you. Like, ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs>